incredible view, isn't it? This is uh, just unbelievable. Looking back over this way, I don't know if you can see that over there. Sun setting. I am so glad to be with you. So thank you so much for having me. I love Faith Bible Church. I love uh, your pastor, Chris Mueller, is just a dear, dear friend of mine. In fact, I think him and, am I right, Nigel, are on their way to New Zealand. And uh, they usually, we go there, I'm going there next year, but so thankful for him, his influence, your church. Of course, my sister, Tracy Dotson, is at the church, brother-in-law, Robert Dotson, my niece and nephews are here tonight. So this is just a blast. So thank you for, for having us. My, you'll meet my wife tomorrow. We did, I think it took us like seven hours, Patrick. You know how that goes. Uh -huh, I do. Seven hours to get down. We were going to come down last night, but we didn't came down today which is great just good to get away travel a bit and uh, but we're so glad to be here this is so refreshing just to you know that part where you're on the is it the five and you can you can just see the ocean right there and uh, it was just phenomenal can you hear my voice okay it was a little I, tough in the back so I'm okay. gonna give you some amp yeah because it's cool? a little cooler back there and it's hotter <laughs> up here but can you hear me back there a little bit a little bit better let me go a little closer that way hopefully you can hear but I am so glad to be here my wife you will meet tomorrow her name is Patty she, I'm just letting her rest and she drove all the way I slept a little bit uh, which was good and so she's resting you'll meet her tomorrow we'll be excited to do that Q&A with you tomorrow as well so very very thankful I met some girls on the way down who my daughter Alyssa is in the church and uh, Alyssa is engaged to the surfer guy named Jason Bolt, and uh, we're so excited for them. So this is just fun to be back here. I won't be with you in the morning. I'll be at FBC in the morning, just travel over there and be there in the service. But this is so, I'm just thrilled uh, to be here. Let me tell you what our goal is, maybe as best as I could see it, sometimes as a speaker, you want to come in and you want to have those things planned, and sometimes the Lord takes you in a little bit of a different direction. But I want to invite you to turn over to the book of Romans. The book of Romans, and I want to take you to Romans chapter 12. It's kind of funny because I did this retreat, I want to say, five, six, seven years ago at Lake San Antonio. Were any of you at that? It was a little bit ago. And, uh, and at that retreat, I did something on the spiritual gifts. I want to actually step back seven years later, if it is, and take you to these opening verses here, which is what the Lord laid on my heart in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I think familiar to many of you. You follow along. I'll read him. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's those two verses that I really just want to focus on. But as I begin to pray and I begin to think about, and especially verse 1, about the mercies of God, and then thinking about presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And then, of course, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It was hard for me to, to just walk into that with you with nothing said there. In fact, if you look down in your Bibles in 12.1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. And that word there, appeal, is the word urge, it's the word, in other words, he is, he is after something emphatic here. And he's saying to them, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your body to him as a sacrifice and, and so forth. I was tempted to go straight into the presentation of your body to the things of God. But I felt like, hey, if I don't understand or don't teach a little bit or you don't understand the ideal of mercies, it, it really becomes a wrong avenue to start. In fact, as you open your Bible, you're in Romans 12. Obviously, Romans 1 through 11 precedes chapter 12. So it's a little bit unfair just to come into 12 and not set the context 
or not set what the mercies of God actually really is. Because based on his mercies, it's out of those mercies that he calls you to commitment. That he calls you to take your body and rather than making it a dead sacrifice, you present your body on the altar as a live sacrifice, which is acceptable to God and holy. But before he gets to that point, he's building his argument based on the mercies of God. And so I want to begin tonight with you just with, let me say it this way, one of those mercies. There's a ton of mercies in Romans 1 through 11. But I thought it might be fair just to start with you tonight and unpack just one of those mercies, which is a, a giant mercy. In fact, tonight is just about the gospel. So I don't know how you come in this. Certainly there's those of you who are committed believers. I get that. There's some of you who might be unbelievers and you're at this camp and maybe somebody's invited you and you've been coming for a week, a month, or two months. I'm so glad you're here. There could be some of you that are in Christ, but you don't have any confidence that you're in Christ and you don't even really understand what the mercies of God are. Listen, this will speak to all of you. And, uh, but I thought, let's start at this point. And I want to start with a, a guy from church history. And his name was Martin Luther. And he really asked the question for the ages. And here was his question. He said, how can sinful man be made right with God? That, he's the one who penned that originally. How can a sinful man, sinful as we are, sinful as he felt he was, be made right before a very holy God. In fact, he asked the question a different way. He said, how does one become righteous before God? He asked this question before he was a believer. He said, how does one get to heaven? Those were his questions. Now, really, that is really the message of Christianity that we're really sinners, the Bible talks about. It says that we're depraved, really, to the core of our being, and the reality of that predicament of sin would send one to hell. And the simple truth of the scripture is that you cannot, by yourself, make yourself right before God. That is the, the profound but staggering message of Christianity. And so here was Luther's testimony. Um, he sought to find peace with God. But as he sought to find peace with God, and I'm reading parts of his biography, he was just filled with doubts. He was filled, he said, with despair. And then he said this, quote, If you had asked me, did I love God? He said, I would say, love God? Luther said, sometimes I hated him. Luther said, I saw Christ as a terrifying judge, who had a sword of judgment over my head, and he said, I had no peace. And so as he looked back in his life, he's filled with all these doubts, with despair, and far from loving God, he would, in his own testimony, say that he hated God. And so I don't know if you know the story. One day he was riding on a horse, and lightning struck. And rather than be killed, he fell to the ground. And while he was on the ground, he said, God, if you spare me from this, getting hit again, I'm going to give my life to you and become a monk. And so he was able to make it home, get back up on his horse that he had fallen off, go back home, and he kept his vow. He entered into a, uh, a monastery, okay? And here's what he said. He, he tried everything. And you say, what was he trying to do? He's trying to please God. So he began, I don't know if any of you will do that this weekend, by sleeping on hard floors. <laughs> In other words, whatever was hard for him, he wanted to please God and make it to God, so he started sleeping on hard floors. He began to fast. He began in his own testimony to climb a staircase in Rome while he's kneeling in prayer. Now, I've been to Rome. I saw people doing that just a few years back. They're on their knees going up a staircase, and what those people are doing is every time they hit a new staircase with their knees, they are praying to spring people out of hell. And so every step they stop, and this is what Luther did. It happened many years ago. It goes on today. Then he went into the, he became a monk. He 
took up all these disciplines. He said that he did three confessions. He did masses. He did absol absolutions. He called them good works. They all proved hopeless. Luther said this, quote, he said, if ever a monk could get to heaven through monastic discipline, he said, I was that monk. He said, and yet my conscience would not give me certainty. I always doubted and said, you didn't do that right. You weren't contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. And Luther said the more that he tried to remedy an uncertain, weak, and troubled conscience, he said the more daily he found it uncertain, weaker, and troubled. And so he, he goes into this religious service, but listen, he is miserable. He's miserable. He has no joy. He has, he's not saved, though he's serving the Lord, and he is absolutely miserable, and nothing pacified his tormented conscience until, because he became a doctor, he was a teaching doctor, he was approved as the professor of Bible at Wittenberg. And he had to study and expound the doctrine of Romans. And here's what he said. So he's an unbeliever. He's teaching Romans. He said, I had longed to understand Romans. And he said, nothing stood in the way but that one expression. And the expression was the righteousness of God. He said, I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and acts righteously in punishing the unrighteous. And then here's the key statement. He said, night and day I pondered until, he said, I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy, he said this, he justifies us by faith. And so, right there, long story in his biography, he got saved. He got saved by understanding that expression. Luther would go on to say, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through an open door into paradise. He said the whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love and he said, the passage of Paul became to me the gateway into heaven. It was that phrase there, the righteousness of God that one comes to by faith that changed Luther. It changed his whole life. It led to what we call the Reformation. Now that phrase, the righteousness of God, is the doctrine of justification by faith. And so what I want to do with you tonight, as we begin when Paul opens in Romans 12, that I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, what I want to do with you tonight is take you just to one mercy, okay? Just to one mercy that would make us present our body to him. And it's this doctrine, the righteousness of God, or as we say, the doctrine of justification. Now, what I want to do with you tonight is just look at three truths of justification, okay? Three truths. In fact, maybe I should ask you, if I brought you up here on the mic, could you articulate the doctrine of justification? Could you tell me about the doctrine of justification? Could you tell me what it means? And so what I want to do is I want to talk, we'll put it this way, the meaning of justification, okay? The grounds, secondly, of justification, and then thirdly, finally, the instrument of justification, okay? The meaning, the grounds, and the instrument of justification. And why I'm doing this is I felt somewhat, how do I just launch into Romans 12.1? Because what happens is if any pastor begins to tell you what you need to do before he tells you what you are, it can lead to legalism. If you begin to think of Christianity as a system of tasks, rather than a response to his mercy, you've missed the message of Christianity. So what Paul does is he builds this tremendous argument, 11 chapters on doctrine, then in 12 through 16, he gets to the duty that you are to live out, that I am to live out. But believe me, before you get to duty, he always builds this doctrine. He gives you your position, who you are in Christ. And if you're in Christ tonight, then you're justified. And we're going to talk about that, okay? So let's do this. Some of this might be a review. Some of this might be brand new for you. But what does it mean to be justified? Or what is justification? What is the meaning 
of justification. If your Bible's open, let, let's begin this way. Look back to Romans chapter 3 just for a moment. When I talk about that word justification, just to build this with you, it says there in Romans 3.20, as you can see it, Paul in this argument here said, by the works of the law, in other words, there's no kind of merit or deed. He said, by works of the law, no human being, and here's our word, will be justified in his sight. I, I think the thing I want to just establish with you, this is not a doctrinal lesson, this is just Bible tonight. The, the word justified right there is in Romans 3.20. He said there that, you know, no works of the law will a, ever, will a man or woman ever be justified in his sight. If you look over at Romans chapter 3, in verse 24, it talks about all have sinned in 3.23. We've fallen short of the glory of God. We are justified, 3.24, by His grace as a gift. And so I just want to build that as we talk about the meaning of justification. This is not some bizarre doctrinal word. This is just a biblical word that's found in the Bible. Well, very well, what does it mean? Here's what it means, if I could just say it succinctly, coming right out of the chute with you. It means to declare righteous. That's what the word means. I'm just trying to put it for you. It just means to declare righteous. What that word means, and maybe I'll put it in terms of an opposite, it is the opposite of the word condemn, okay? To be justified is to be declared righteous. Now let me go just a step further with you. You gotta get this, you gotta understand, it, it could change your life as it did for Luther. Justification is a legal act of God. I mean, let me say it that way. It is as though Paul's in a courtroom, and when he talks about this word, it is a legal act. It's not an act of men, but it is a legal act of God by which he declares the sinner righteous in his sight. That's what it is. He is, as, if you could almost picture this as a courtroom, God's got the gavel, God takes the gavel, he pounds it down, if you will, on the desk, if we can call it that way, and he declares you, he pronounces you righteous in his sight. So whatever the doctrine is, it's not something that man does. It's something that God does. He does it by way of a legal act declaring you righteous before him. Now, the scripture, as we've read it earlier, look back in 3.20. He justifies us. This is so clear. He said, for by the works of the law in 3.20, no human being will be justified in his sight. Now, you know, you understand this. Some, there's about 340-something declared religions in the world. It's better to say that there's two religions in the world. There's the religion of man's righteousness on his own, which would say this is what man must do. This is what he must act like. These are the disciplines he must have. There's that one, which is works righteousness. And then secondly, there's Christianity. And it's only in Christianity that God actually declares someone righteous apart from works. So it makes Christianity utterly unique. But let me take you a step further. That, that's the word. That's the meaning of the word. But let me begin to unpack that for you, okay? In the doctrine of justification, okay, biblically, something is removed. This is how it's easy to understand it. And something is added. Something is removed negatively, if you will, and then something is added positively. Let me just say first, there is the removal of sin and guilt, okay? He removes that. And then secondly, there is what we call the imparting of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just spell this out to you. And maybe I'm asking you tonight, if you're a young man, young woman, have you been justified? Have you been declared righteous? Do you have the confidence, a settled conviction, that if you died tonight, that you would go to heaven? Because whatever you do, I don't want you to live like me as a teenager. I had no peace. 
In fact, when I read Luther, I think, yes, yeah, Scott, you're about like Luther in your own external habits. And I had no peace because I had no assurance. And I had no assurance because I was trying to do it by myself rather than to see this thing as an act of God. But let's talk about that. First, sin is removed. Sin, of course, is the great barrier for us before God. When Isaiah got into the presence of God, he saw himself as a moral leper, if you will, before a holy God. Sin is always against God. And the one who sins, the Bible's real clear, cannot be right with God. In fact, the question is, how can, how can we be right with God? And the answer is, we cannot be right with God because sin stands in our way. But students, the wonderful news is that God, through Christ, has dealt with our sin. Here's the picture of Christianity. He justifies you. When he justifies you, he declares you righteous. And in that act of declaring you righteous, here's what he does. He removes your sin. He takes away your sin. In other words, when he removes your sin, he justifies you. He declares you, listen, not guilty. That's the teaching of Scripture. That if you stand before God, no one can get there. But when he declares you righteous, it's declaring what the Scripture says is that he's removing your sin. Psalm 32 says, How blessed is he, how happy is that person whose transgression is forgiven. Do you remember what it says? Whose sin is, anybody know? It's covered, is what the Scripture says. How blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And so within this doctrine, there's a removal of sin. Isaiah 43, 25, God said this, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions. And then this in Isaiah 43, 25, and I will not remember your sins. Okay? So what is this doctrine? What does it mean to be justified? It means to be declared righteous. But in that act of being declared righteous, he removes your sin. Listen, I can't tell you how important that was. Just a few weeks back, I'm walking in our vineyard by our house, the orchard, the fruit vineyard. And as we're walking, we see a man coming to us, and we know this man. This man's name is Greg, and he's an elderly man. He's probably in his 70s, and we've not seen him for a little bit. He knows that, I don't think, maybe he didn't know I was a pastor. I think I had told him that before. But I'm in there walking with my wife. It's always nice to walk in the spring, in the midst of the fruit that's growing all around our house. We see him coming. He's walking his dog. We stop. We talk to him. He's just recovering from surgery on his heart. And so we just opened a new building at the church that I'm at. And, uh, and, uh, and so we said, hey, uh, we'd love you to come. Hey, Greg, would you come? And he says, oh, I could never come. And I said, why, why couldn't you come? He says, because I'm a Catholic, and he says, I, I just couldn't come. And In fact, I, he went on to tell us that he used to be an Episcopalian, but when they began to go far off in their doctrine, and he didn't like what they were teaching, he decided to join the Catholic Church, and he became not only a full member of that, but he became, what he told me, was a lay priest. And I said, ah, oh, Greg, you, you'd be welcome to come. Just come. Just just come hear the word, I was telling him. And, and so as we begin to talk, we begin to talk to him. And so my wife just felt, I think she, you know, she's, she's an evangelist. She says, uh, Greg, if, what would happen to you if you died? Okay? Just a good question, a basic question. And I, and it, and I know this guy, okay? Because I know what he did. He's a special ops guy, is what he did. He was in special ops not in Vietnam, but I think after the Korean War. And my wife said, if you died, what were to happen? He goes, oh, he goes, if I died, you know, and we laughed, but it wasn't funny. He goes, I'd spend 10,000 years in purgatory. Somebody could say that as a joke. He wasn't joking. No smile on his face. He's going to spend 10,000 years in purgatory. And we begin to, to bear down on him regarding the grace of God and regarding the love of God and regarding the forgiveness of sins. But listen, I'm telling you, here's a man in his 70s. He's got no peace. He's walking around with a burden on his shoulder, a big one. 
And I'm only thinking if this guy's in special ops, he's done things that he probably can't even tell us about. And so when he said 10,000 years, he wasn't saying it like I've done. I've had people tell me I've done a lot. Of, I've had a guy tell me this week I've done a lot of bad things in my life. I don't think that's a great saying. I think Greg's thing, saying that he's done things, that he's got no peace. And really what he's saying is he doesn't have forgiveness. He feels like he's done so many things, whatever those were, that if I asked him, my wife asked him if he's going to heaven, he's not, he doesn't know if he's going to heaven. In fact, he's not going to heaven. He's going to a place called purgatory, which is nowhere found in the Bible. Now listen, I don't want to get into the complexities of their doctrine and what the scripture says, but the scripture doesn't talk about purgatory. But I realize that he still bears the weight of his sin and whatever he did, how sad it is. You agree? To walk around in your 70s trying to be religious, offering mass to people as a lay priest, and yet he himself is going to go to a place for 10,000 years to be there enough to where he could really get in before God. Listen, what I'm telling you, students, is when God justifies a sinner, he removes your sin. He takes your sin away. Listen, when he justifies you, you are, in the Scripture's language, completely forgiven. That's what it means. And so I'm asking you, do you have that assurance tonight? Have you had the forgiveness of all your sins? It just means this. When he declares you righteous, you are no longer liable to be punished for your sins. Listen, it's almost too good. I can't believe it. Almost. There's no other religion stating this. The Bible's telling you that if you are justified and he declares you righteous, watch this. I could say it this way. He removes all your sins past present, and even what? Future. And what he does is he forgives you of those sins. In other words, he erases from your account every record of what you have done wrong. That's what the Bible teaches. And as sin is blotted out, so does his memory of the misdeeds. Okay? In other words, he chooses not to bring them up on you again. Now listen, the consequences of sin may remain, but the condemnation for the offense is gone. We are forgiven. We are covered. We are blessed. In fact, look over just at Romans 5.1. I think you know this. He says, therefore, since... Do you know this is the language there? We have, what? Been justified by faith. We have peace through God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you have peace because your sins are are forgiven. So listen, here's what it is. He declares you righteous. He said, what does he do when he declares you righteous? Number one, negatively, he removes your sin. In fact, students, you've used those electronic calculators before. What happens when you're on one of those electronic calculators or you're just on the calculator on your phone? You make an error, right? You press clear or you press C, the C button, and immediately all of the information that you had had in that is eliminated. Then you begin again without trying to sort out the previous mistake. There's no record of your mistake. It is lost forever. forever. Listen, when you come to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that's what happens to your sins. He forgives your sins in justification. Do you have that? Do you know that? In fact, look over at Romans. I think you know this in 8.1 where he talks about the effect of that. He said, there is now, therefore, there is therefore now no, what? Condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. So the scripture talks about it being justified. It's put in the past tense. In Christ, we are not subject to any charge of condemnation. You are declared righteous. What a wonderful truth. Now let me make sure I say this. Justification, I think you get this, let me just say it, is not to be repeated, okay? It's not to be repeated. I mean, you're, you're here tonight, you're either justified or you're not justified. You, 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 in other words, you're not ever partly justified or partly dead. Remember that one movie? He's only half dead. Um, you're either justified or you're not, but it is not to be repeated, which means my father-in-law said to me growing up in the Midwest in a Wesleyan church, he said, Scott, I got saved every week. 
Uh, what do you mean you got saved every week? He said, Scott, I walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, signed on the dotted line every Sunday, and then went out in my life and got unsaved on Monday through Friday. So then by the time Sunday came, he walked the aisle again, prayed the prayer, signed on the dotted line, and did all that, then got unsaved on Monday. He said, repeated it all the time. Listen, when he declares you righteous, God, he does that. It's not to be a re repeated process. Unlike the doctrine of sanctification or becoming holy, which is ongoing, justification, let me just clarify this, is an instantaneous event. Okay? Instantaneous. It is a declaration of righteousness that is complete at the time of your salvation. And once you are justified, that justification is final. That justification is irreversible. So I'm not walking around on my in or out. No, when I got on my knees at 14, he removed my sins, right? He took it all away. He took every sin I ever committed and cast it into the deepest part of the what? The sea. He took my sin and as far as the east is from the west, he put it away from me. He took my sin and forgave all of my sin, okay? That's what Christianity teaches. And so it's final. It's irreversible, but that's only one aspect of justification, right? Sins are forgiven. That's the negative. He removes your sin. Secondly, in this first point, something is added, right? Something is added. And what is added is Christ's righteousness, okay? So what does that mean? It just means that the supreme need of the sinner, my heart, your heart, is righteousness. And the truth is we don't have it. And in the doctrine of the scripture, Christ supplies it on behalf of the believing sinner. Righteousness comes through the person of Christ. You say, well, how does it come through the person of Christ? Well, it comes through, we don't talk about this as much as we do his death, and we should glory in his death. But when he lived on this earth, he lived for how long? 33 years. And for 33 years, he lived, the scripture said, an absolute sinless life. He was perfectly righteousness. So watch this. In justifying you, God forgives your sin, okay? And then he also, I, I like to use this word, imputes into your account the perfect righteousness of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you can't live that. I didn't live that. But listen, he did. And he kept the law fully, perfection for 33 years. You say, well, how does that work, Scott? Well, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, I love it. It says, for our sake, he made him to be, what? Sin, who knew no sin, that we might become, here's the key phrase, the righteousness of God. Let me just explain that. He made him who knew no sin. Speaking of Jesus Christ, he never sinned. You know that. He lived a perfect life. Peter, in his writing, said this, that he committed no sin. He never sinned at all. John says of him in 1 John, I think it's in 3, 5, in him there is no, what? Sin. He was perfect. The writer of Hebrews says in 4, 15, he's tempted in all things, but he is without what? Sin. The testimony of Scripture is he's never sinned. And so he made him who knew no sin to be what? Sin. So that in him, it says, we might become the righteousness of God. So in justification, let me back up. He forgives our sin, and then he imputes or puts into your account the righteousness of his Son on our behalf, the righteousness of his perfect obedience. And this he does, the Bible says, for our sake. And so God made Christ to be sin. He charged Christ with the guilt of our sin to the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he turns around and he credits the righteous life, the perfect life of Jesus Christ into our account. Why? So he can make you righteous before God. Let me just untangle one thing for you. If all you had was your sins forgiven, you, you tell me. It's a little controversial, a little question for you. 
If you had your sins forgiven, could you get into the presence of God? It's a little bit of a trick question. The answer would be, what do you think? The answer is no. Let me explain that. If all you had was your sins removed, you can't get into the presence of God. You say, well, why not? Because to get into the presence of God, you need the righteousness of God. You don't have the righteousness of God. I don't have the righteousness of God. So in God declaring the sinner righteous, he not only takes your sin and removes it from you, but he puts into your account the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he begins to look down on you through your union with him as having all your sins charged upon Christ and having all his righteousness put into your account. So we get a phone call on the 5 freeway. We're coming south tonight. And it's one of my twin daughters. We have seven kids, and these are the last two. They're 18. I wanted to bring them, but they had a ton of responsibilities this weekend. I still call them the babies. Out of the seven, they're the youngest. And it's Lauren on the phone. And she says, Mom, we need some more money. And Patty says, well, um, how much did you spend last night? And I think they had to go to the store. They're doing something. Graduation's coming. They got finals next week. Uh, we had to put whatever we put in there last night wasn't sufficient for tonight. And so we're driving, and it's, it's a, we're driving 55 or 60, and then quickly we came into bumper and bumper. So Patty takes her phone. You know how that goes. She gets on the Chase account. Her number is, no, I'm just kidding. So she gets on the account, okay, and she takes money from our account and puts it into Lauren's account so that while they're at Save Mart, she has money into her account to make that transaction at the store and buy what's needed for what they're doing over the weekend. Listen, we get how that works. You might use that. It's pretty good if you set that up with your parents and they just dump money into your thing. But watch this. Here's the amazing truth of Christianity. God not only removes all your sin. Uh, you know what, what? What a blessing that is. What a blessing that is. Like for me, when I was 14, I think I've shared this with you before, I couldn't cross a street. When I'm a teenager, I dribble my basketball to junior high. I'd get to the stop sign, and I couldn't cross the street for fear that I was going to get hit by a car because if I died, I didn't know where I was going. And I lived like that for about five years of, gosh, is, am I saved or am I not saved? And I really wasn't saved. I hadn't yielded my life to Jesus Christ, and I didn't have my sins forgiven. But watch this. When I got down on my knees... When God declared me righteous, he removed every single sin that I had ever committed. He removed every present sin. He removes every future sin from me. But that, that's not all he does. He puts into my account a deposit. And unlike the deposit that I gave to my daughter, my wife did today, he puts into my account the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? So now, all of a sudden, when God declares you righteous, he wipes out your sin. But then secondly, he gives you the righteousness of Jesus Christ lived out before you. In fact, the hymn writer Wesley put it this way, No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, do you remember that? My living head, and Wesley said, and clothed in righteousness divine. In other words, what I'm telling you is when God Almighty looks down on you, if you're a believer, when he looks down on me, he sees me clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. So I stand before God not condemned. I stand before God forgiven. He calls me his child. He calls me his son. He gives me his mercy. He justifies me. In fact, I like the, there's another hymn, um, Actually, before I say that, the reformers used to call this, in their language, they called this the great exchange, This what we're talking about. The, the great exchange was the word, because it doesn't really make any sense. You're a, a sinner. I'm a sinner. One sin's enough to send you to hell. God Almighty comes in, takes his authoritative gavel, pounds it down. He chooses to remove all your sin. And then you, by that sin removed, wouldn't get into the presence of God. You need something else. He gives you the righteousness of Christ to get into his presence. It's called the great exchange. In fact, the reformers were clear on this. They called this alien righteousness. In other words, you need a righteousness, but you can't get it. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You need a righteousness. It's alien. It's outside of yourself. It's the righteousness that comes from God in the life of Jesus Christ. And when you come to him, 
He gives you that and then forgives you all your sin. There's, a, there's an old hymn. Do you know that song, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me? Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. He called it the double cure. The double cure is you need it removed, but positively you need here his righteousness given to you. So here's sins forgiven and righteousness added. Do you have that assurance tonight? And you say he does that through our union with Christ the way he sees us. This is amazing. It's just an amazing truth. That's the meaning of justification. But what's the grounds of justification? What's the foundation whoa, of this justification? And, and, and I mean, I could probably ask you, but let me just say this. Practically, the grounds of the foundation of this justification was the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, look back at Romans. So here's the grounds. This is the second concept. The meaning was first. The grounds is second. What, what do you mean the foundation or the ground? It's the cross. Look at Romans 3.24 where it talks about here being justified by his grace as a gift. And then he says it this way. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, he redeemed us. Well, how did he buy it? He, bu he bought us back. We're on the market, if you will, to be offered he comes in, he redeems us, but redemption is always the payment by a great price. And how did he redeem us? He redeemed us, obviously, by his death. In fact, look over at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, again, expressing this concept in verse 9, where he says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his, what? Blood. In other words, the foundation of it, the grounds of it, is the death of Christ, okay, by his sacrifice. Look over at Romans 8 just for a second. Romans 8, great, great scripture there when Paul's giving that great argument of our eternal security. He said this in 8.33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who's going who's gonna to come at you is the thought. Verse 33 says, it is God who justifies. Watch this. 834, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is he who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. And so there it says that Christ Jesus is he who died. So here the grounds or the foundation of our justification is the cross of Christ. Peter said it this way. He himself bore our sins on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 Isaiah, do you remember back in the Old Testament in 53, he was smitten of God. It said that he was wounded, if you will, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. And so the ground, the, the foundation is the death of Jesus Christ. You said, what do you mean by that, Scott? That God charged our sins to Christ on the cross, okay? He removed our sins as far as the east is from the west, and he did that. He paid the penalty in full in his death for you. And so God's justice was satisfied in Christ. His wrath was exhausted on Christ for you at the cross. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. The ground of our justification is the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins. Let me just make a comparison for you. I think you get it. The ground of your justification is never your works. It is never your merit. It is never your religion. It is never your deeds. It is not your baptism. It is not your membership. It is not your service. It is not your overseas trip, wherever that may be. The grounds or the foundation of justification is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for you and for your sins. 
And then you add in that the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Third and finally, maybe this is the most important. This is something of his mercies. It's justification. This may be the most important question this weekend. It may be the most important question for you for the rest of your life. And you're going to have to hold on to this. What is the instrument of justification? In other words, how do you get this? I mean, I want to be super practical for you. How does that become yours? Maybe these are just words. Okay, you, you get it. Okay, the meaning, he removes it. He adds the righteousness of Christ. The basis and the foundation of it is his death. But here's the question. It might be the question for the whole world, 7 billion people. What's the instrument, though? How does this deal become yours? Because some of you might feel like, oh, man, there's some spiritual people here. But I don't know about me. I don't know if I could ever be a Christian. I don't know if, Greg, that guy saying to me, He's got 10,000 years. In other words, through the pain of his eyes, he's done such bad stuff. He could, but what is the instrument? Well, according to him, it might be what he does. But I'm asking you biblically, what is the instrument? How does this transaction become yours? How do you get sins removed? And how do you get righteousness added? That's the ultimate question. How does a sinful man become right before a holy God? Well, you can't do it by yourself. We, we know that, right? You can't do it by your deeds, though some people think that. How does it become yours? How, how, does it, how do you get this privilege to do this? I remember one time, you guys know my son Johnny, when he was real little, I had a friend that played on the Lakers. And I remember one time he said, Scott, I'm going to leave you tickets at will call and I lived in Chicago so it was it was very common for me a number of games I had a friend a very successful friend in the business world who had front court seats to the Chicago Bulls and I would sit regularly in the second row behind Michael Jordan watching him drop 35 or 40 a night it looks like without even adding a sweat and then on the bench was this guy named Dennis Rodman and he was a different dude but I, I, I had so much fun going to those games but then one time, my friend was on the Lakers, and he was playing up in Milwaukee. I said, Johnny, I have to go to a Christian convention for pastors. Do you want to come? I was just kind of, it was one of those good lives to tell him. I didn't want to tell him. So I just drove up from Chicago up to Milwaukee, two hours away. The Lakers were playing the Bucks, and my friend left tickets for me. And so I go to Will Call. I said, my name is Scott Arvanis. And he said, show me your license. And I pulled my license out. He said, okay, great. He said, and Johnny still didn't know where we were. He saw all these rock concert artist on all the poster boards. He goes, wow, this is kind of a cool place. There was Prince up there. I mean, this is a few years back. And so he gave me these tickets. And so we went in, we got through the turnstile, and he still didn't know where we were. We're inside the stadium, but we're walking on the outside. And then you get to that corridor, and I walked Johnny through the corridor, and then as you go through that corridor, you know how that goes, then all of a sudden the arena opens up, and I looked at his face, and he had this big smile on his face. He goes, Dad, it's the Lakers, and we saw our friend down there shooting buckets before the game, and it was really cool. Maybe I should finish that story. Then after the game, he said, I want you to meet me over at this place, over at gate number 43. So we go into the special place hour after the game, and it was, it was not L.A., so it's Milwaukee, small town. And uh, we said, we're here to see uh, our friend Mike. And so he, he takes us. He goes, ah, he goes, he wants you to come all the way inside. So he brought us all the way into the inner court where the Lakers were coming out. And so Johnny met everyone on the Lakers at that point. But the funniest guy that he met was this guy, did I ever tell you this story? Shaquille O'Neal. So he's meeting all the Lakers, and out of the locker room, it's like the door opened, and it was Darth Vader. I'm telling you, I played college basketball. This had to be the biggest man that I'd ever seen, because he's, I played with seven-footers, but he's seven foot, I don't know, one. But he's not just seven, he, he's not just seven foot one, he's like 320 pounds. And he comes over to meet Johnny. Johnny's like eight at this time. I, I, I think I have a reason I'm telling you this. Um, but he's eight. And so Mike's, Mike says, I, I'd like you to meet Shaquille O'Neal. And, and Johnny's just looking down. 
And I'm starting to hit Johnny like this. So Johnny's right next to me, shacks up to the wall. He's just massive. You can't believe how just big he is, you know? And so I start to hit Johnny, and Mike says, hey, you need to meet uh, Mr. O'Neill. And I'm still hitting Johnny. And I go, Johnny! So you have to understand, he's looking like this. He's eight years old. He's looking down. I'm like, what is he doing? I didn't even know what he was doing. And I finally just whacked him hard. I said, Johnny, would you meet Mr. O'Neill? And no joke, he looks up to me as only an eight-year-old boy. Dad! I'm like, what? His shoes are this big. <laughs> he couldn't take his eyes off his shoes. Listen, you've never seen a shoe like that. Size 23. Johnny, Johnny, you understand, 23. He was just staring at him. He couldn't get his eyes off his shoe. And then he finally met him. You know, Shaq tells you. Yeah, he didn't enjoy it. And so it was, it, was, it was surreal. So listen, I had tickets to get in the game. I had tickets to get into that private locker room, which nobody probably ever does. You never get that in L.A. But that was a ticket. I had a ticket at Will Call. It had my name on. How, how, what's the instrument here, though? How does it actually become yours? And this is the truth that only Christianity will tell you. It always comes through the instrument of what? Faith. 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 And I'll explain this to you. You only get this by faith. It's the instrument, okay? It's been manifested. Look back in Romans 3. I just don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to miss this at all. In Romans 3, it says there in 21, now the righteousness of God, you understand, you can read this now, has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God, 322, through faith in who? Jesus Christ. How this becomes yours is through personal faith in Jesus Christ. Now, even that, I'm just up here. It, it's, it, I don't want to say it's bizarre. It's just truth. You can't do it on your own. The instrument that God's provided is faith. You say, how far does that run in Romans? Really deep. Look over at Romans 3.26. I'll just stay here. 3.26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has, what? Faith in Jesus Christ. Look down at Romans 3.28. We are, we, for we hold that one is justified by, what? faith apart from the works of the law. Go down in chapter 4 and verse 3. There it's talking about, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, that's the verb, believed at the noun is faith, but he believed God and it was counted to him as what? Righteousness. Look at Romans 4 or 5. For he says, and to the one who does not work, you know, it's not merit, it's not religion, it does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. So listen, students, it comes through the instrument of faith. Now, I'll, I'll explain that just in a moment, but you think, well, gosh, God, I kind of heard that. Well, you said, does everybody believe that? No. We're the only people who believe that. I'm, I'm serious. Every other religion is a man-made system to do something to gain righteousness. You say, like who? Well, if you're here tonight, I, I don't want to be, you know, uh, I don't want to be uh, like a jerk or something, but if you're here tonight and you're visiting and you're Catholic, I, I can tell you what the Catholics believe, okay? And, uh, and this isn't like what I think. This is what they teach. This is what they believe. Just so you understand, we're not just throwing this out. It's by faith. They teach that the instrument of justification is what? Okay, you're going to say works, and I'll explain that, but that's not the instrument of justification. So does anybody know what they are? What, what is the, if you're Catholic, 
and, and you want somebody to be justified, I'm, and I'm just explaining, I'm not trying to be like antagonistic, or, but if you want somebody to be justified, what must be done? Yeah. Do you, what, what's your name? Ryan. Ryan. Ryan got it. You say, what's their instrument? It's baptism. So when I grew up, and I thought everybody wanted to take their child over to get baptized, I thought it was kind of a cultural thing. It's not a cultural thing. If you want your baby to go to heaven, you take them to be baptized. Now, that's not in the Bible, but they're teaching that the instrument of salvation for a child is their baptism. You say, Scott, do they believe that? Yes, I'm teaching. That's what they teach. It's in all their canons and all their dorts and all their laws. You, you say, well, Scott, what are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about this. The baby goes, little baby boy, little baby girl, okay? So maybe some of you have been to him. The priest comes and he baptizes them by what? Sprinkling water onto their head. And I'm just telling you that when they sprinkle water on that baby, they are sending in their mind that baby to where? Heaven. This is what they teach. They teach that baptism is the primary instrumental cause of justification and that the sacrament of penance is what they call the secondary restorative cause. And so Catholic theology views penance as the second work plank of justification for those who have made shipwreck of their souls. And it requires works of what they call satisfaction by which human beings achieve congruous merit for justification. Listen, if you ask a Catholic, is justification, is it by faith? They would say it's by faith, but they would also deny that it's by faith alone. And so they add what secondly to it? Works. You say, well, Scott, have you seen this lived out? Oh, yeah. So I'm just trying to create a contrast so you understand when the Bible says instrument is faith, this is to be fought for, okay? So I go to my friend's funeral. He was on my staff in Chicago. I go to his funeral. His dad was an absolute, Sean, is this being taped? It isn't? Or is it, is it being taped? It is, okay, I have to be careful with my words. This guy's dad, I wouldn't have said a bad word, but this guy's dad was as bad as you could possibly be, okay? I won't say his name. He, you say, what do you mean? He was just an adulterous, filthy, immoral man his entire life who never yielded to the lordship of Christ, who never gave his life to Christ. And I knew him. I lived in the community that his son was on my staff, and he died probably around 78. I went into the funeral, and I couldn't believe it. I'm sitting in the back. You know, the priests come forward. They have the the candles and the incense, and this is what happens, and I've been to more than one now. It's always the first word out of the priest's mouth. We thank you for so-and-so, and they put his name in here. We know he went to the glory of heaven to meet his maker because he was, what? Baptized. I, I felt like standing up in the back. I would have been bad. I felt like saying, hey, wait a minute. That is not what the Bible says. So what they're saying is, based on his baptism 77, 78 years ago, that man went to heaven. It didn't matter how he lived. It's not what the Bible talks about. The Bible says there's one instrument. There's one ticket. There's one turnstile to get into heaven. And it is this. It is the faith of the believer. In fact, look over. Let me just show you this, and we're almost done. Look over in Galatians just for a second. This is just... It's wordy, but it's good. In Galatians 2, look at this. In verse 16, he said, and it sounds like Romans. Again, it's Paul here. In Galatians 2, 16, he says, And we know that a person, 2, 16 of Galatians, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith, what? In Jesus Christ. Let, let me just stop here for a second with me, student. Don't, don't misunderstand me. You're never saved by your faith. Okay? I just want to be super clear. It's not your faith. You say, Scott, you just said it was faith. Yes, I know. It's faith. But faith in the Scripture always has a direct object attached to it. And who's the direct object? It's the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You're not saved because you walk an aisle, pray a prayer, sign on the dotted line. It's my faith. It's my faith. No, no, no. In the Bible, it's always linked to the person of Christ. Look at 2.16. It's through faith, always this way, in Jesus Christ, so that we who have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law... Uh, no one will be justified. It's always in Christ. Look at 2.17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, you know, it, it's always in Christ. You say, well, Scott, what do you mean? I just mean this, that it's the instrument. But you're not the instrument. You're not the key to make that happen. You've got to have faith. And faith is what unlocks the gospel and the doctrine of justification to you. It is, let me say it this way, it is the instrument... But it is not the cause of your justification. You are not justified because of your faith or on account of your faith. If that were true, then faith would be a what? It'd be a work. We would then be justified on the basis of our works. No, all we're saying here is that faith is the channel through which the benefits of Christ come to us. You are not justified on account of faith. You are justified, here's how I would say it, through faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And so it is the work of Christ, not our own faith, which is the instrument. So listen, have you come to that place? You say, what, what, what do you mean come to that place? Uh, let, me, let me give you a description of it. You come to a place where you realize you're guilty before the Lord. You come to a place where you recognize that one sin is enough to throw you out into, into hell, to be honest with you. You come to a place where there's no other work, there's no other way, there's no other means. You can't buy it, you can't purchase it, you can't work for it. And as you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you look away from yourself and you look unto him and you put all your hope in him. And when you get down on your knees and beat your breast and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Listen, he is going to justify you. He is going to legally declare you righteous. He is going to remove all your sins. He is going to put into your account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so you look away from yourself and you look to him. It's not your faith that saves you. It's faith in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Okay, that's what it's all about. What Paul says is this is a mercy of God. If you can crawl back into Romans 12, he's saying, I urge you, I appeal to you based by the mercies of God that you present your body a living sacrifice. But listen, students, your commitment to Christ is always built off these mercies. Listen, I, I, you should wake up every single day blown away that he saved you. Every single day you should woke, wake up and think, wait a minute. He forgave all my sin. Wait a minute. He gave me the righteous, righteousness of Christ. Wait a minute. He redeemed me. I'm telling you, if you begin to dwell on those mercies, it would allow you to live the Christian life in commitment to him. But it always comes that way. And so listen, you've got to come to that place. And maybe I'm just asking you, have you, have you come to a place of faith? You say, well, Scott, I don't, I, I don't know if I could ever do that. Well, you've got to come to a place where you see yourself as a sinner. And uh, for me, that was when I was 14. I think I've shared this with you before. I was shooting baskets in my backyard. And just one truth popped into my mind. It was this. It was James 2.10. Some of you might know it. For whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles at one point, he has become what? guilty of all. I'm telling you, if I've been going to MacArthur's church, listening to him in the book of Romans for five years, I was like a dead fish going downstream and I didn't even know it. So this one night, 14, I'm in my backyard and to me, it was like a lightning bolt out of heaven. To me, it was almost like he sent a divine arrow to a self-righteous young kid who would not yield his life to Christ. And I realized for the first time in my life, I could have kept the whole law, but if I sinned just one time, I would be guilty, what? Of the whole thing. And so right there at 14 in the story, I went in, got on my knees, and confessed the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that moment, it almost, it's hard for me to say it's such a great truth. In that moment when I cried out to him on my knees in my room in a little bedroom in Canoga Park, in that moment, 
He declared me righteous. He declared, he justified me right there. In that one moment, he took away all my sins that I ever committed and added into my account the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And I've got up from that moment and I've been walking with him, certainly not in perfection, but walking with him the rest of my life. Listen, if you ever come to that place, this is not the faith of your mom. This is not the faith of your dad. This is not the faith of your grandparents. I don't care if your dad's an elder. I don't care if he's a deacon. I don't care if you come from three or four generations of Christian family. I don't even care. Listen, I was at, I was at Teen Challenge the other night, and I'm watch, watching a guy walk up to sing in the choir who's from our church, who got addicted to drugs who got on alcohol. He's been around the truth all of his life. You pray for him, but right now at this point, he doesn't know the Lord, but he's been around the truth. His mom and dad serve in our church, but he's never yielded to the Lordship of Christ. You've got to come to a place where you see that this is the only way. Here's the ticket. The ticket is not your faith, but it's faith in what another has done, and then that will give you the peace of God. But that's one of his mercies. And I submit to you, when we understand some of these great doctrines um, of his mercy, then it will lead us to live an obedient life for him. Amen? Why don't you bow your head with me? And maybe just as your head is bowed, I believe the worship team might just be coming up in just a moment, but as your head is bowed, do you know him? Have you cried out to him? Have you recognized your sin? If you know him, then rejoice and thank him for that. And don't forget that if you're justified, the Bible says in Romans 3.24, it is all a gift. <laughs> it's a gift. You don't even get the glory for him giving the gift. He said, but Scott, I had faith. Yes, but even faith, according to Ephesians 2.8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourself. It is a gift of God. Even the faith you have is a gift that he gets all the glory. But if you don't know, listen, I'm holding out to you, even as I speak, the hope of eternal life. The hope of eternal life is bound up in Christ. I pray that you would submit your life to him. Some of you may have felt that you've out God, but you can't out God. If you but with an open hand and an open heart come to the foot of the cross, no matter what you've ever done, he will forgive you all your sins. You say, but Scott, I've given my life away. I've given my body. Listen, I don't care what you've done, whatever you've done, if you come with bended knee, confessing sin, repenting over your sin, and asking Christ to change you, he will declare you forgiven. He will declare you righteous, but you've got to come through his way, and you've got to look to the person of Christ. Listen, if you've never done that, if, you, if you're walking around in guilt, if you're walking around with a lack of assurance, it may be because you've never just dropped your knee and opened your heart to him. I pray that you would. Would you consider that tonight? Would you talk on these things this night and even tomorrow as we go into some free time? Father, we love you. I know this is the truth because man would only invent a system where he can gain it by doing something or purchasing something or doing some kind of deed, but you give it to us, Father, based on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and away from looking to ourselves and looking to him. And so this is the gospel. Father, we commit our life to you this night. Open hearts that we might see in Christ's name.